The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, good morning. To all of you that are uh, a part of this family and to all of you that are visiting with us today, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be upon you today. Well, if you haven't heard yet, there's a baby Vanderzee. This, this is Asher James Vanderzee, who was born on November 7th. He is seven pounds, one ounce, and 21 inches long. And uh, thank goodness he wasn't born with Brett's beard. Th I praise the Lord. Let's give a hand. Yes. Thank goodness he looks like his mother. Well, we just want to celebrate. Uh, actually, I'm not sure. I was texting with Brett. Uh, somebody maybe shouted out, are they at home? Are they they're at home? All right, they're at home. And from all accounts, things are going well. So we give God thanks and we celebrate with the Vanderzees. Uh, we're in a sermon series, When You Pray. Praying your way into God's world. And it's not so much uh, that we want to pray God into our reality or into our will, as oftentimes prayer becomes, but when we pray, when Jesus, when the disciples ask Jesus to teach them to pray, Jesus says, when you pray, say this. And it's that we're praying our way into God's world, into God's will, into the way the world is imagined actually in Jesus Christ. We want to give you a chance to participate a little bit more. That on your, uh, the pew, is a card when you pray. And there's, we want to get opportunities for prayer requests. The staff regularly prays. We regularly pray for one another. I know you pray in, uh, in your small connections, in your small groups and connections group. And the staff regularly prays. It's particularly on Mondays, but not only on Mondays. And so if you have a prayer request... Uh, please fill it out and uh, you could leave it or you could pass it along to Kelly or myself and, uh, or to Leah or any of the staff and we'd be happy. Uh, we'd, we'd actually be honored to pray for you. We we'll, might talk about these here in a little bit. So I want to begin as we do in this sermon series with prayer. Uh, and I ask you to stand as we pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. One of the most vivid images in the New Testament is that of an old man running. Now, we're used to seeing people run these days. There are many people that are out for all kinds of reasons. Fitness as a primary one, out running. So to see uh, someone running, even in their 40s, maybe even in their 50s or later on, to see someone running is uh, even someone that is older in years is not 
odd for us. But in the Jesus time, the older you got, the less you ran. You didn't need to run. It was actually undignified to run. So if you're an old man, you walk. And the older you get, the slower you walk. For to run is not a dignified act to do. In fact, it would be something like this in our culture. It would be like me standing up to preach in a Speedo. Like it's just not. Okay, okay, okay. So maybe that's just more than undignified. That's inappropriate, right? And giving you that mental image. Why are you all looking at me like that? Don't look at me like that. I feel very self-conscious right now. (laughs) Don't look at me like that. (laughs) Okay, you get my point. I was going to say you get the picture, but that's that's a bad thing. You get my point, right? To... It would be something like that, right? <sighs> Guy's running. How undignified is that? But the picture we get is of an old man running to embrace his child. And this child, this is not any child, this is one that says, Father, I want all of your inheritance, which is basically to say, I wish you were dead. He's cursed his father. He's dishonored his father. And he's running to embrace this son. And it's not just any child. It's one that has dishonored his family as well. I mean, the way he's gone out and lived, the way he's acted, the way he just left the family... He's dishonored the whole family. And yet this old man doesn't care about his dignity. Then when he sees the sun on the horizon, he runs. And we call this the parable of the prodigal son. N.T. Wright wonders if we should call it the parable of the running father. For God's will is restoration of relationships. That's why he runs. That's why he has no dignity. And then he leaps off the porch and runs out off into the distance to embrace his child. Because God, more than anything, wants to restore relationships. And what characterizes God most is this. We sang about it this morning. We preach about it. We pray about it. We proclaim it. What characterizes God the most is that he forgives. The image of him throwing his dignity to the wind and running towards us with everything that he has and everything that he is. He forgives We know from daily life that relationships can go wrong. I don't even have to ask. Every one of you stuck your foot in your mouth. And if you're in a relationship, like a marriage relationship, oh, we know this all too well, right? It's not just marriage relationship, but particularly because you're around your spouse more than anyone else or that significant other more than anyone else 
And so the risk just by being around each other goes up for sticking your foot in your mouth. Let me give you an example from my relationship with Kim. Kim, like many uh, daughters with their mothers, not everyone, but has a complicated relationship with her mother. And so uh, it does not go well when I say, you're acting like your mother. All the men said, ooh, that, that was a mistake. I know, I know better than that. You do too, and you did it. That's why, that's why you know better, right? We've, we've done that. Even if, even, if, uh, even if the daughter has a good relationship with her mother, that's still not something that goes very well. And then you're backing up going, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, wait. Sometimes I, I've got to confess, I, sometimes I've done it on purpose just to, and don't act like I'm a bad person. You know you've done it too. Offenses and trespasses cause real damage to relationships. Even ones that we don't mean to, but the ones that we particularly mean to do. And relationships need to be restored. And so this is why we ask God, this is why when we come to this prayer, God, forgive us our debts. It's because God is not immune to that hurt in relationships either. He's not immune to it. And forgiveness is God's way of doing what he wants to do most is restore relationships. Forgiveness is how God restores relationships. Because without forgiveness, there is no restoration. The father hurts from the son, but when he stands on the porch ready to run, without dignity he runs to embrace us. So let me say this, because I know some want to say, but Christ has already forgiven us. Why do we need to ask for forgiveness? You are forgiven. In Christ Jesus, you are forgiven. But like any relationship, we must attend to it. I know my wife's probably going to forgive me. Probably. <laughs> my wife will forgive me. But I still need to attend to that relationship, right? I still need to attend to that hurt. I need to attend towards restoration. We attend to the forgiveness offered to us by asking for and receiving forgiveness. But when Jesus prays, forgive us our debts, if you notice, it is, he says, not remember at the beginning, my father, but our father, and he uses this word, not forgive my debts, but forgive us our debts. And it's interesting because uh, for Hebrew people, there is this real sense that we're not just asking, we're not just participating in our own need to be forgiven, but that the community, we're part of communities that have sin and debt. 
In fact, during the Holocaust, there's a story about a man, a Lutheran pastor named Martin Neimuller. I think that's pronounced his name. And he actually had an audience with Adolf Hitler before he became chancellor and was promised lots of things about protections for the church and all of these things. And so he trusted Hitler. He eventually, though, ends up in Dachau in a, the concentration camp as a prisoner and is eventually liberated. But after he's liberated, he reflects on this and he actually writes this. He says, first, they came from the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came from the communists. They came for the communists. I didn't like the communists, and I didn't speak out because I'm not a communist. And then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not in a trade union. But then they came for me. And there was no one left to speak out for me. And he reflects on the kind of silence that he had as a way of participating in the sin that was going on around him. And so we pray, forgive us our debts because we participate too when we don't speak out. Forgiveness is God's restorative act. But it is not just God's will that, are re that we're just restored in relationship to God. God intends that all relationships be restored. All relationships in creation, all relationships between people, that's his intention. And so in this prayer, it's not that Jesus says, Lord, forgive us our debts. He says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Some way, somehow, God's forgiveness is connected with us forgiving others. For in Matthew, immediately after the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew, now, he could have commented on anything about that Lord's Prayer. I've, Brett and I have commented a lot on the Lord's Prayer, but as Jesus prays this prayer, when he ends the prayer, immediately his comment is this. Chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. For if you forgive people their trespasses, trespasses your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men or people their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now this is complicated for us, right? Because it sounds like something that we can do to earn forgiveness. But I, wanna, I don't want you to miss this because in this prayer, the only, thing he the only thing he comments on after the prayer is this idea about forgiving one another. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who, are in, who are, forgive our debtors as well. And he says, but if you don't forgive other people's trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. 
this is complicated for us, but let me say this. Without trying to explain it all the way, I realize how it sounds and how complicated for it is. But let me say at the very least, here's what this means. Forgiveness is a gift to you. It is God's gift to us. God is a good giver of good gifts. He is the old man standing on the porch waiting for you to come over the horizon and then leaving all his dignity and his porch behind, jumping off the porch and running to you. That is a gift. But all good gifts come with responsibility. So at the very least, I want to talk about this as the gift of forgiveness comes with responsibility. And part of that responsibility is the way we interact with other people and how we forgive. He also uses this odd phrase, debts. Luke actually uses, you think, I was talking with one of my colleagues who's a New Testament professor about this, and I was trying to remember, wait a minute. Yeah, Matthew uses debts, and, or is it Luke, right? And even he was like, no, I think Luke. Luke uses debts because that sounds like Luke. Luke would want to talk about economics. But actually, I went back, and as I was, it's Matthew that uses it. Luke actually uses sin. And what's interesting about that is that probably most commentators think that probably Luke uses sin because it would be very confusing to Gentiles. When you start talking about debts, the Greek word that's used is very much associated with finance and banking. It's the Greek word that's used. And so that'd be very confusing. Almost confusing like if we were to say, Father, forgive our mortgages. Which doesn't sound... I mean... Don't get me wrong. <laughs> God forgiving my mortgage would be fantastic. And there is something to be said about the economics of it, but Matthew, he actually doesn't change and use the word for sin. He actually wants to keep closer to the Hebrew, which is the word that we use for debt. In Matthew 18, he goes on and later in Matthew and, and uh, tells this parable, 18, 23 through 25. It says this. It says, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servant. And when he, went, when he had began to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, the master commanded that he be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had, and that the payment be made. The servant, therefore, fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay all I will pay it all to you then the master of the servant was moved with compassion and released him and forgave him the debt but the servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying pay me what you owe me 
So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all that I owe you. And he would not. But he went and threw him in prison till he should pay every single bit of that debt. So when the fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved and came and told their masters all that he had done. Then the master, after he after he'd called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servants just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the tortures until he should pay all that was due him. Even later, he uses this economic idea of debt. And while, for sure, there are probably connotations about economic debt that are there that we could talk about that we're not going to talk about this morning, but probably at some point, what needs to be understood from these stories and Matthew's use of forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors is that in an honor-shame culture, which Jesus is a part of, honor and shame is like social credit. They thought about it almost in economic terms. So honor and shame function like social credit, rating, me- rating and measuring one's reputation in the community. Honor is having a positive social credit, and shame is a negative social credit or debt. And so it's like identity projection. The way you see yourself, honor and shame is like the way you see yourself in the eyes of others. The claimed sense of self-respect or self-dignity in an interaction situation. So honor and shame cultures are designed around establishing and expanding relationships. You know the old phrase we use as well. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And in these relationships, it is critical to maintain the proper balance of an honor, lest one incur a social debt of shame among one's peers. So there's what's probably that's what's like called positive reciprocity and negative reciprocity. Right? Positive reciprocity in the New Testament world is if Kelly invites me to dinner and honors me, that what am, what is how do I respond? That I invite her to dinner. Right? Jesus talks about this. Right? Don't just invite people who can inv- invite you back. Remember that when Jesus says this? This is where it's coming from. But even more important in relation to our text about as we forgive our debtors is this idea about the negative reciprocity that happens. So for example, Matthew 5, just before he prays this prayer, Matthew 5, 38 through 42, it says this, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. There's this idea in an honor-shame culture of limited good 
you still experience this in honor shame cultures around the world but this idea that there's enough that there's honor and that honor has to be balanced and if you have more of it right then i've got to somehow balance that situation so if you give me honor by inviting me to your house then i have to repay but if you do something like offend me or shame me right you've reduced my honor and so the negative reciprocity is this idea of retribution. It's about honor. If you, in, if you bring an insult on me or shame on my family, then I must bring an insult or a shame on your family. If an eye for an eye, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. Right, so this is why, and many people in America don't understand this, but in, in, in Middle Eastern cultures, there are these things called honor killings. They're not good, but it's this idea that if your nation or your tribe or your people come and kills one of my family members, right, then I can go and kill one of yours in order to somehow restore honor back to me and my family. Now, the person they kill or take or do damage to may be totally innocent. They had nothing to do with it. But it's not about, it's not about the kind of justice like I'm going to go get that person. It's about restoring, you did that to me. I'm going to do it back to you. You punch me, I'll punch you. Now, you may think that's a long way from our culture, but do you hear people talk like this? An eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. This quote is attributed to Mahatma Gandhi. We don't know if it came from him, but I love it. It says this, an eye for an eye ends up making the whole world blind. And ultimately, this is why Jesus says this. Because in Deuteronomy 32, and then Paul quotes this in Romans, he says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. When someone dishonors you, You're not to retaliate. That's God's business. It goes on to say in Matthew 5, 43 through 48, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you as the son cursed the father. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven, for he makes his, the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, if you only love those who invite you to dinner, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? 
Don't even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we talked a lot about honor-shame cultures. And in many ways, we're not an honor-shame culture. But I think we experience the kind of honor and shame more subtly. We do experience it. For example, this may not be you, but maybe you can relate. Have you ever been driving down the road? Mind your own business. Life is good. And then all of a sudden, somebody's next to you honking. And they're raising their fist, and they're flipping you off. And you're like, why are you flipping me off? And they're trying to get you, and they're just yelling at you. And I don't know. There's either one of two reactions you have. Part of me, I start to feel shame. Like, oh, what? Did I, did I cross some boundary? Did I almost hit some? What did I do? Even when I did nothing, maybe, right? Or you try to protect your honor to say, who are you? What do, what do you think you're doing yelling at me? Have you ever done that or had that experience or can imagine had that experience? Both reactions are out of a sense of honor and shame, either feeling shame or trying to defend your honor. So, for example, it's not odd that we hear someone who's been, we hear this phrase, I can't believe she would do that to me. How could she say that about me? Do you feel the shame? The negative social credit you have in the eyes of others? Or this, right, which is the defense of honor. Who do they think they are? Have you ever said that and thought that? It's the defense of your honor. They're saying or doing something to you which reduces Right? Your social reputation, potentially, whether you deserved it or not. Betrayal, hurt, offenses cause us shame, or they cause us to react in defense of our own honor. And it causes us to lose something connected with who we are or how we think about ourselves in light of others. It changes maybe how we react. So if you hear that someone's been talking about you in the community, you're likely to walk in on Sunday morning thinking, is everybody looking at me? What are they saying about me? What else is being said about me? Or in defiance, I don't care, who do they think they are? They can say that stuff about me. That's not far from our experience, is it? Honor and shame. These are real things that hurt. And there are people that owe us something. Either an apology or honor or something else. You may have seen it in the news. It's been a few weeks ago, but... Botham John was an African-American, actually uh, African-American gentleman that was in his apartment. Actually, what's interesting, what I felt more connection, and particularly on the campus of Oklahoma Christian, is that Botham John, who lived in Dallas-Fort Worth, actually attended Harding University, which is the Church of Christ School, much like OC. He attended a Church of Christ <laughs> which is neither here nor there, but it somehow connects in my, me a little bit more. Maybe not for you. 
But he's sitting in his apartment eating a bowl of vanilla ice cream with the door slightly ajar, and a police officer, a woman who lived downstairs, supposedly uh, mistook, went to the wrong floor and thought she was entering her apartment, and she saw the door was ajar and drew her gun, opened the door, he stood up, and she shot him dead in his apartment. It was a big controversy. All of the news, trial happened, and she was convicted and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. What's amazing, you may have seen this as well, and we're going to watch the full thing, but what was amazing as members of the family were able to respond to this police officer, in fact, what made it even more controversial is that both of Jean is African-American and the police officer is white. And as his brother, Brent John, is sitting there and gets a chance to speak in front of this woman who killed her brother, he says this. I don't want to say twice or for the hundredth time what you've or how much you've taken from us. I think you know that. But I just, I hope you go to God with all what, all the guilt all the, thing, the bad things you may have done in the past, each and every one of us may have done something that we're not supposed to do. If you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not gonna say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see I I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's, what, that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you.
I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. This was controversial. Some talked how amazing it was. Others thought, That's, what is that? Why would you do that? I don't know what you think about it, but let me say this. That's the image of an old man running. As he gets up out of his chair and walks to her forfeiting what dignity he might think he has or wants to protect. Brent John understood the gift. I think he understands the gift. And I think he knows that with that gift comes responsibility. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I'm no fool. What we're talking about, what Jesus is talking about here is not easy. In fact, it may be nearly impossible. In fact, one of the things that I think is the most difficult thing in the Christian faith is to love your enemy. So let me propose this today. I'm not saying as we try to follow Jesus that we go and tackle the most difficult things in your life. What if we just started with this community? What if we just started by forgiving our debtors in this community? In all the small ways, what if we started forgiving one another? As hard as it might be, because we have been given the gift of forgiveness. To participate in forgiving those who have offended you, who have taken something from you, is to participate in the God who jumps off the porch and runs to the sun that's way off in the distance. It is to participate in the restoration that God wills for this world. Maybe you need forgiveness. We'd love to pray for that with you. Maybe there's someone in here that you need to forgive. Maybe there's someone in here that you need to go to and ask for forgiveness. 
more than these cards, we'd ask you to do that. But if you want help with that, let us know. For if we can be a community that is not only forgiven by God, but forgives our debtors as well, we may actually be a sign and a foretaste of God's present and coming restoration for all creation. Will you stand as we sing?